Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Support for MPB comes from the Woodward Hines Education Foundation, committed to helping more Mississippians obtain post-secondary credentials, college certificates, and degrees that lead to employment. More information about Woodward Hines Education Foundation at woodwardhines.org. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, October 20th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, are more state takeovers on the way? Find out what new state rankings say about Mississippi's public and charter schools. Then take a look at the state legislature through the eyes of the first African-American to serve since Reconstruction, what he sees on the horizon. And saving oneself. Learn tips for prevention or early detection of breast cancer. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The majority of Mississippi school districts are improving, despite speculation about the Mississippi Department of Education's newest annual accountability rating system. The grades have been determined using three different assessments over the last several years. Still, results show about one in five Mississippi school districts is growing. Some benefited from better graduation rates and test scores, and others apparently benefited from changes in the scoring system. The number of F-rated districts fell from 20 to 9, while the number earning C, B, or A ratings increased. Paula Vanderford is Chief Accountability Officer at MDE. She tells MPB's Desiree Frazier, despite changes, she thinks the school grades are accurate. I think the school grades provide an accurate uh, representation of how districts are performing in the areas uh, that are included in the accountability model, and the components provide a breakdown so that it's very clear for parents as well as the schools to see how they're performing in each of the areas, such as math proficiency, science proficiency, reading proficiency, and then growth in the areas of English language arts and math. One of the concerns has been the assessments have changed and how do you look at consistency? How do you compare last year to this year? Can you talk a little bit about how you're going to achieve that consistency? Well, one thing I want to emphasize that has maintained consistent in the model is the components that we measure. And what's been unfortunate is that we've had to measure those components using three different assessments over the course of that three years. So now that we have an assessment, um, we're in the, uh, well, this year will be the third year that we will administer the MAP assessment in English language arts and math, and as well as um, our assessments have been consistent um, for U.S. history and science. But, but moving forward, we're going to see the data that is that we're able to make that longitudinal comparability from one year to the next because we will have the same assessment. And when you talk to um, superintendents, what are they looking for from you? 
I think the superintendents and principals and teachers uh, have the same desire that we have is that that we are consistent from one year to the next with the assessments that are administered. When you have a group of F schools, what do you start to begin to think about when you see how their scores are? Well, I think when you look at the the F schools, which which represents the schools that are actually um, failing or uh, at risk of failing, I think this provides them with the data that they need um, to determine the processes that they need to put in place to improve instruction uh, because what the uh, accountability model is based on, as we've said, um, is primarily growth and we want to see growth um, on these assessments from one year to the next. So Moving forward, it just identifies areas of weakness and where they can improve uh, for student outcomes. Do we have some schools at risk of takeover at this point based upon these? Well, we um, have six uh, school districts uh, based on these results that have been an F for two consecutive years. So potentially um, any or all of those six would be eligible under both sections of the statute for some state intervention, whether it be from the Achievement School District or through a declaration of a state of emergency. Can you tell me what those six are? Do you know? Um, Yes, we have uh, the list of those. It's Greenville Public School District, Holmes County School District, Humphreys County, Jackson Public School District, Noxabee County, and Wilkerson County. What about the results of charter schools? How are they doing? Are they in these results? So, yes, the um, charter schools were included in the data that was released. Uh, So as reported to the commission yesterday on 147 districts, um, the the state statute states that each charter school is reported as an LEA. And so we currently have three, and two of which are rated a D and one an F. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. According to the Department of Education, there are six districts that have earned an F grade for two consecutive years. That means they could be eligible for state takeover. Nancy Loom is executive director of public education advocacy group, The Parents Campaign. She tells MPB's Ezra Wall what parents should be looking for when reviewing ratings. This rating system is not an exact science, and ours is experiencing some growing pains because we have had multiple state tests, different assessments from in, across the last several years. And one of the most important things that the Department of Education and our model, our accountability rating system, considers when assigning these grades is how much students have improved in their learning from one year to the next year. And so they determine that by looking at how well the students perform on the state test in one year and then how much that student has learned the next year, which is demonstrated by how well the student scores on the test the next year. You only have a, a true look at that when you're using the same test, the same type test. When you change the test pretty dramatically, it's very hard to get an accurate read on what we call academic growth, which is improvement. Did that student 
get a year's worth of additional knowledge in each of those subject areas across that year. And that's much more difficult to measure when you change tests. And what we learned last year, after the fact, was that the expectation for growth, the measurement of for growth from one test to the next when the tests were not the same was really not very accurate and therefore um, there was a very high expectation for the amount of growth that should take place in each year built into the cut scores that were established. And so what all that means is that the scores were too high. The, the cut scores were too high. It was an unrealistic expectation. I want to ask you about the good news and the bad news. So, like, taking into consideration all the different uh, scores that uh, that came out across all the districts, is there a positive takeaway? Oh, very much so, very much so. What we've seen is very positive. We are seeing um, improvement across the board. And so students are uh, doing better than what they did last year is concerning proficiency rates. We are seeing higher proficiency rates in every subject, math, reading, science, and history. We are also seeing um, higher ACT scores across the board, higher graduation rates across the board. So there is good news um, in just about every category, and that's wonderful. That means that our school districts are really doing a great job of giving students what they need. On the bad news side of things, or maybe just the improvement needed side of things, what's the area where the state could improve the most? Well, clearly, we want every student to be proficient. And so we still have, you know, a number of districts that don't have a proficiency rate in their districts that would allow them to be rated a C or a B or an A. And so we want every district to be rated a C or better, and they are working on it. The, the, also, the very good news is that when we talked about those point totals that determine whether a district is rated an A, a B, a C, or a D, or an F. Um, the districts that had the highest positive change in total points were our districts that were rated an F last year. On average, districts that were rated an F last year gained 48 points. And that was the highest. When we, we looked at it by rating category, the F districts gained the most. The D districts gain the next most. And so um, that's very good news that the most positive change is happening in our lowest performing school districts. Thank you very much. You're welcome. When MDE officials voted to change the rating system, they predicted the majority of schools and districts would not see a change in their letter grade. Coming up, take a look at the state legislature through the eyes of the first African-American to serve since Reconstruction, what he sees on the horizon. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. 
Mississippians are honoring former Speaker of the House and retired educator Robert Clark. In 1967, he became the first African-American elected to the Mississippi State Legislature since the Reconstruction era. In 1992, he became the first African-American elected by his peers to the office of Speaker Pro Tempore, a position he retained until his retirement. Former Representative Clark taught and coached in the state public school system before seeking office. A celebration honoring the 50th anniversary of his election was held earlier this this year, the Holmes County Democrat will now be featured on MPB TV's At Issue. He tells At Issue host Wilson Stribling his first assigned seat at the Capitol was isolated from others. There was no other African American that was elected at the time, uh, but no other individuals elected to seat to sit next to me, and I sat next to that for uh, maybe two times before I finally got an individual that sat next to me. Change was slow to come because it was still, what, almost 10 years, I believe it was 1976, before there was another African-American elected to the legislature. Did that surprise well, you that it took that long? It took uh, about eight years mm-hmm. before uh, I got another seatmate. He's from elected from North Mississippi, and uh, he sat beside me. We talked a little bit about uh, education and the, the reforms that were made, especially in, in 1982. And, and there were others uh, in the other years that you served until the, the early 2000s. How do you feel about the state of education uh, today in Mississippi? And if you were in the legislature, what would you be trying to change? I would be trying to find out the causes. Every time we see, you see national statistics, the last one I saw, is where Mississippi was ranked at the bottom of the ladder. And uh, education, the dropout rate is high, the teenage pregnancy rate is high. And what I think uh, somebody, the, the state elected officials that's in charge of education, as well as the local elected officials, uh, they need to assess their particular situations uh, and whatever... Uh, we are coming up short in. That's what we need to look at. We are still uh, back to the point where the educational level in the state of Mississippi needs improving. And it's not going to just improve itself if people do not have the proper human values to see uh, the value of an education. And this needs to be looked at, what we need to do. When I was in the classroom in this particular school system, uh, students were just, you know, they was maybe on a ninth, on a ninth grade level, ninth grade algebra, ninth grade math, and couldn't do fractions or decimals or what have you. Hmm. Uh, but usually what I did with students like that, I had to go back, start with them where they are, and bring them up. And my principal at that time, Somebody in the math department summoned him and told him I wasn't teaching on, on that level. And he summoned me to his office, and I told him, you are correct. Some instances I'm teaching on my level, and other instances I'm not. And he just said, I urge you to go back to your classroom and start teaching on the level. I told him, Mr. McLean, there's no way in the world I can do that. And I explained to him that I had to work with them to bring them up so that they would be able to know what I was talking about. Uh, if I was dealing uh, with gel math in the ninth grade or first year algebra, 
Uh, and, and that's what's going to have to be done. We are going to have to close the gap. First of all, students should not get behind. Uh, you know, if you had proper leadership in the classroom, uh, you know, your principal in the classroom or whoever's the uh, leader should know what's going on in the classroom. But you get students who is uh, four and five grades behind the grade level that they're on, just being passed on. What do you think the next 50 years are going to be like in Mississippi, in the legislature in particular? I really can't predict now what the next 50 years, what it's going to look like. But I wish there could be a turn in the philosophy of the legislators, the present legislators. Rather than going to the legislature or working against somebody, uh, go to the legislature working for Mississippi. Now, I can say that because I spent 36 years in the legislature, and my main interest in, in the legislature was looking out for the welfare of Mississippi. And whatever uh, the weakness of Mississippi was, I looked at that time trying to strengthen that. I didn't look at if they were the independent, <laughs> Democrat, or Republican. I just looked at the need. Uh, and naturally, those needs, uh, some is going to need more than others. Uh, and I wish the legislature would do that. Look at trying to build a stronger Mississippi. We all are Mississippians. Former longtime state representative Robert Clark, we thank you for spending some time with us. Thank you. And issue airs tonight at 7.30 on MPB TV. Coming up, saving oneself. Learn tips for prevention of early dete- or early detection of breast cancer. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. In October of 1820, two generals, future President Andrew Jackson and future Mississippi Congressman Thomas Hines, traveled to Doak's Stand on the Natchez Trace. There, they met with three chiefs of the Choctaw Tribe to negotiate what came to be known as the Treaty of Doak's Stand. The treaty, like many before and after, was designed to resettle Native Americans and open up land for white settlers. The treaty resulted in the Choctaw surrendering half of the remaining homeland in Mississippi to the United States government. In return, a significantly smaller area of land in Arkansas and Oklahoma was ceded to the Choctaws. This agreement was followed 10 years later by the Treaty of Dancing Rabbit Creek, the final significant land session for the Choctaw tribe. This has been Mississippi, a thread through time. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Health disparities are affecting mortality rates among Mississippi's victims of breast cancer. That's according to Dr. Harpreet Talwar with the University of Mississippi Medical Center's Cancer Institute. Many advocates for health and wellness and charitable groups are holding events this month to raise awareness about breast cancer. The campaigns may be raising awareness, but Dr. Talwar says access to care can make a difference in the number of people who die from the disease. She tells us more about breast cancer rates in the state. So the incidence has actually stayed about the same over the past decade. The detection rate is going up. What about the mortality rate? Um, The mortality has actually decreased, but I'm not sure about over the past decade. But since the mammography was first introduced, 
back in the 50s, that over the last 50 years or so, the mortality rate has decreased. More detections, is that because of awareness or better technology? So I think it's multifactorial. So all of those are a big factor. First of all, in introduction of screening mammography, which was which is kind of currently recommended by the American College of Radiology to be had every year in an average risk woman starting at age 40. So that definitely helped. And, you know, the whole movement about awareness, breast awareness, breast health awareness, how women should take care of themselves first before taking care of the rest of the family, I think all of that changed the outlook on personal care as far as women go. And, yes, that has contributed as well. You're saying that mammograms are the best manner to detect? Yes. Currently, mammograms are the gold standard for an average-risk woman for breast cancer detection. There were changes made a couple years ago or or different recommendations made regarding self-breast exams. They're no longer a thing? Yes. I believe the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology was kind of discouraging self-breast exams, but they have kind of rebranded the thing, and now they call it self-breast awareness. So for a layperson, I would say self-breast awareness or exam, you have to kind of know what you're feeling for or know where to feel to actually be either aware or do an exam. So in my opinion, it almost kind of comes down to the same thing. Now, you said a first mammogram at the age of 40. How often after that? Every year after that, as per American College of Radiology recommendation. Every year as long as you live? So uh, pretty much yes, or until the woman is in good enough health where the projected uh, longevity of survival is at least two years. Talk about lifestyle, lifestyle choices, and how they might affect one's chances of getting breast cancer. Some of the great recommendations come from American Cancer Society where they actually ask you to maintain an optimal body weight because increased body weight or obesity increases a hormone called estrogen in the body, which actually feeds the cancer cells. So active lifestyle, decreasing or uh, keeping a good body weight, and food intake or alcohol intake actually is the other culprit that recently came into limelight over the past 5, 10 years or so. They found that the optimum amount of alcohol should be limited to a 4-ounce drink. Um, and occasional drink. Is there one part of the population that's more uh, at risk for developing breast cancer? I mean, is it by age, by race? So both are correct. With advanced age, the risk of breast cancer increases in a female. And also by race, I think incidence-wise, there's not much difference between African-American women and white women or Caucasian women, but the mortality is significantly different actually proven that more African-American women die of breast cancer. and um, That's because they have not sought treatment as much? You know, this, this leads to the whole disparity issue. So, yes, sometimes... Or access to care, correct. access to be able to see a doctor. Correct. Or socioeconomic factors. Correct. Yeah, so it's very multifactorial, and especially in the state of Mississippi where 20% of the population is below poverty line it's, and... You know, the access to mammography centers or experts or people who actually do the screening mammograms 
or a center that does screening mammograms, all of that is limited geographically and also insurance, access to insurance is limited and it's multifactorial at this point in time. If you're diagnosed at stage one, what your expectation for recovery is? So stage one is actually pretty, um, uh, has shown to have the best survival rate overall. I mean, if you seek correct treatment, then stage one survival is, I think, greater than 90% over the next five years. And then when you reach stage four, what is it then? It becomes pretty dismal at that point in time. I believe it's something like 20%. And then sometimes we can modify your screening schedule. If the woman, we find out by calculation that if she's at a greater than 20% lifetime risk of breast cancer, which makes her high risk, then we can modify her screening schedule, keep a better eye on her. At six-month intervals, we'll end up doing one kind of screening test or another to make sure that she. if she did develop breast cancer, it'll be, like, really early to pick it up. So, yeah, I mean, just be overall aware of your breast health and take care of yourself. Dr. Harpreet Talwar heads the Division of Breast Imaging at the University of Mississippi Medical Center Cancer Institute. Dr. Talwar, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. And happening today, thousands will be bold and be bald. Individuals coast to coast will wear bald caps from the second they wake up to the moment they go to bed to help raise awareness and funds for cancer-fighting charities across the country. I hope you'll join us Monday morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from the Woodward Hines Education Foundation, committed to helping more Mississippians obtain post-secondary credentials, college certificates, and degrees that lead to employment. More information about Woodward Hines Education Foundation at Woodward. 